Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal, where we're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders that you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Dan Gorodnik, former New York City Council member and author of the soon-to-be-released book, Saving Stuyvesant Town, How One Community Defeated the Worst Real Estate Deal in History. It's a fascinating story about a community with a history of activism coming together and ultimately securing a huge victory for affordable housing in New York. And while it's a uniquely New York story, it's also a story with powerful lessons for anyone who's trying to solve what might seem like intractable problems. I also talked to Dan about his own journey into public service, grounded in a passion for civil rights that eventually had him leading the effort to save Stuyvesant Town. Dan Gorodnik, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Super excited to talk about your new book, Saving Stuyvesant Town, How One Community Defeated the Worst Real Estate Deal in History. And I will tell our listeners that took me a couple times to get it right, but they were not going to hear that. So uh, (laughs) super, super excited to talk about this. For uh, those non-New Yorkers like me, reaching all the way back to before World War II, maybe you could just start by telling us what Stytown is and why it's important. Sure. Well, back in the 1920s and 1930s, it was a severe housing shortage in New York City. And there were efforts to try to deal with that through building new units. Fast forward to the early 1940s, then Parks Commissioner Robert Moses and Mayor LaGuardia put together a plan to try to do what they called slum clearance for the purpose of adding new apartments that would accommodate veterans returning home from World War II. Uh, They got permission from the state of New York to wrap up a deal with the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company to have them do the work to build the new buildings and gave them permission to clear out all of the people and homes that were there previously, uh, which were mostly poor immigrant families, and uh, MetLife, in exchange for building the the new units, was given a, a tax abatement and it lasted for 25 years and a guaranteed 6% rate of return for the period of the contract. So it was all intended to be a way to create more housing for veterans. And it is for the, you know, since I know not everybody is a New Yorker who's listening here, it is a community that's on the east side of Manhattan between 14th and 23rd streets sandwiched between the East Village, Union Square, Gramercy Park, Murray Hill. Uh, so it was, uh, it was an important initiative for New York City's housing stock because uh, New York was struggling. MetLife, with the city and state permission, went, went out and built this huge, huge housing complex, which has 
you know, 11,232 units today houses 30,000 people. So that's the history. That's how it came to be. Yeah, it's so interesting. I don't know, again, like you said, non-New Yorkers may not realize, I mean, that is a huge amount of land. It's a huge number of houses right in the middle of Manhattan, actually. So, I mean, people, I think, are going to be surprised to even know about this who aren't uh, familiar with New York. Right, well, there are towns and cities in this country which don't have that many units of rental housing. Uh, there are towns that don't have population of that size. And yeah. this is just, you know, it's nine blocks in Manhattan, which makes it, you know, it makes it important by any objective scale but it is also really important to New York City. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And so tell us, uh, your story really kicks off in 2006. What happened around that time that set kind of the story you tell in the book in motion? So after owning the property for 50 plus, almost 60 years, MetLife, which had built it with all of that support from the city, and all of those tax abatements and opportunities and guaranteed returns decided that it was going to put the property up for sale at the very height of the real estate boom in 2006. No recognition of the history, no recognition of any obligations more broadly to the city or to society as a result of how it all came to be. And we haven't even talked about the horrible racist origins uh, where MetLife denied you know, residency to black people when it first was open. But MetLife decided to put the property up for sale in 2006 at the top of the market. And it created, as you might imagine, a total feeding frenzy among the real estate establishment in New York and beyond, because 80 acres of land on the east side of Manhattan does not go up for sale, you know, all at once, ever. This was a huge trophy for somebody to get their hands on. Uh, it was an opportunity to make a big mark in a big way. And what ensued was a white hot auction where bidders from around the globe came out of the woodwork to try to buy Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village. Peter Cooper Village joined it shortly after Stuyvesant Town was built, and it's all owned by MetLife at this point. So they put it up for sale and people come and they start bidding. It, was, it had been you know, projected to be a multi-billion dollar deal, but by the time the bidding was over, the property sold for $5.4 billion, which was billions of dollars more than real estate professionals had projected. Out of the wake came Tishman Spire and BlackRock as the new owners. You know, they came out on top ahead of all other bidders, including, by the way, and I think this is relevant for the story, the tenants of the community. Because the tenants, and I helped them in this process, put together a bid to try to buy Stuyvesant Town for themselves, to help them become home, homeowners and not to simply sit on the sidelines while this, you know, while real estate titans were fighting for their apartments all around them and treating them like pawns in a chess game. We decided to take matters into our own hands and try to compete. We ended up putting together a bit of four and a half billion dollars, which so while much respectable <laughs> and so much money, was a full $900 million shy of the mark, but it, you know, it had the effect of putting the tenants and their brand new city councilmen uh, on the map 
and made sure that people were paying attention to what we were doing from that point forth. But Tishman Spire and BlackRock emerged as the owner and they paid an extraordinary sum. And of that $5.4 billion, they had to borrow $4.4 billion to make it work. They had a billion dollars in equity, $4.4 billion in debt. And the only way that they could pay off those debts was to make some pretty significant changes to the community. And we'll come back to the story in a minute, but I think it's important to note here, at this time, you have been elected to the city council and you were representing Stytown on the city council, but you also have a real personal connection to, to Stytown. So let's let's talk about that for a minute before we kind of come back and pick up the story of, of why, this, why this meant so much to you personally, in addition to representing Sure. I was born and raised in the neighborhood. Uh, I spent the first four years of my life in Stytown. And then my parents made the very, very big move across 20th Street into Peter Cooper Village. At that time in 1976, Town did not have air conditioning. Peter Cooper Village did. And my parents, in search of a slightly bigger apartment and air conditioning, moved across the street. And I lived there for the rest of my childhood and most of my adult life. It is a it's a wonderful place to be in New York City. It's distinct. It's a bit off the grid. It has parks and playgrounds. It's a place where you can safely raise your kids and feel comfortable and let them run around a little bit in a way which you might not in the rest of the city. It has its own security force. It's got a variety of playgrounds that are accessible to residents, although people from outside the neighborhood also come in and use them. It's just a really nice, it's a really nice place to be. And it was a very comfortable place for my parents to raise me. I'm an only child and they were, you know, I was the son of a public school teacher and a portfolio manager who were a pretty good example of the sort of people who lived there over time post the World War II era. You know, in my building, you had a bunch of teachers, a truant officer, a former FBI agent, uh, some homemakers. You had a variety of teachers, a furrier. Um, it was like the, the cross-section of New York firefighters, police officers. You know, that was, the, that was the middle class of New York. And so for me, growing up there, I had a very clear picture of what it was and what it was intended to be. I mean, so when I was born in 1972, the property was, you know, only 20, you know, or so years old. So it was still pretty new as I was a child. And so the neighbors that I saw there really uh, were reflective of what, you know, what the community had evolved to be. A lot of original tenants, a lot of senior citizens who moved 1949 and you know, never left. They're still there today, which is amazing. But that was the personal connection that I had to this neighborhood and recognized its importance. Oh, as a political matter, of course, it was 20% of my city council district. So I, you know, I know we've got a lot of New Deal leaders out there. I challenge <laughs> any of them to find a moment when 20% of their district goes up for sale in a single moment. <laughs> that was what happened to me six months into my first term in the city council. Yeah, probably a very unique situation. But it is just listening to you talk about that, you know, thinking about New York and prices, you know, to, to think about this area that's housing your teachers and firefighters and in the middle of the city. So, so important. So, so let's get back to the story for a minute. So we're, we're at this place where the, the new buyers have come in and laid out this enormous amount of money and, and gone into the debt to, to, to buy it. And so you said that they were going to have to make some changes to cover that cover that uh, sale. So tell us about those changes and then what happened come recession time. <laughs> so the there were certain rules that governed the rents in Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village. 
Uh, and they came into play in 1974 after that first contract between MetLife and the city expired. The tenants agitated and pushed their state legislators to find ways to create continued protections for rents. And they became part of what is known as rent stabilization in New York, which for all intents and purposes creates a more stable and predictable level of rent increases for tenants in the city. Rent stabilized tenants have a right to a lease renewal. They have a legal right. And they there were a few tools that existed for owners of buildings who had rent stabilized tenants to take apartments out of the rent stabilization system. As you might imagine, rent stabilized units tend to depress what might be the, the market value of the apartment. That doesn't go without saying that it would, but in Stuyvesant Town, it did. The market value for the units was higher than what the rent stabilized rent was. And there were a few tools that existed for the new owners to be able to get those apartments out of rent stabilization and bring them to the market. And one of those tools was called vacancy decontrol. Vacancy decontrol allowed an owner like Tishman Spire and BlackRock, or MetLife for that matter, once a unit became vacant, to make certain improvements to the unit and then rent it for the market rate. So as you might imagine, that created a pretty strong incentive for an owner to find ways to get rent stabilized tenants out of their apartments so they could do just that. And in fact, Tishman Spire and BlackRock's business strategy required that they move a fair number of rent stabilized tenants out of apartments and start renting market rates for them that was gonna allow them to not only pay back their debts, but make some money on their very significant investment. Unfortunately for them, they hit a few roadblocks. One of the roadblocks was, uh, and perhaps most significantly, they, they were wrong about the number of tenants that they could get out of their apartments because they thought that people were illegally in their units and that they had either second apartment somewhere or whatever. They were wrong in their calculus about the number of people that they could get out of their apartments. That was one. Number two, when the tenants put together their bid to buy the property in 2006, we discovered that MetLife and Tishman Spire as their successor, they were taking a tax break from the city. And this tax break, it's called the J51 tax break, prevented you from deregulating any apartments. Mm. You take the break, you can't deregulate, is what the law said. Uh, we looked into it and filed a lawsuit against MetLife and Tishman Spire. And of course, if we were to be successful, it would mean that their entire business plan was not feasible. Yeah. In a uh, what was the biggest tenant victory in probably a generation. This case went all the way up to New York's highest court, our court of appeals, and the tenants won. And the ruling was pretty simple. You take a tax abatement under J51, you cannot take apartments out of rent stabilization. So that doomed their business plan uh, to failure. Uh, the third thing that happened, this is the one that you started with, was the, the collapse of the American housing market which made it very difficult for them to bring fresh new money into the deal and to try to persuade people that there was any opportunity for success here on an ongoing basis. So the result was that Tishman Spire defaulted on their loans in January of 2010 or late December of 2009. So just a few years after. 
Um, and it created a another whole moment of challenge for the community, uh, for the residents, for the city. And certainly it was a it was an unpleasant reality for Tishman Spire and all of their investors who came from everywhere. Everyone was invested in Stuyvesant Town. Everyone from the California Pension Fund, the California Teachers, mm. the Florida Pension Funds, uh, the Church of England, the government of Singapore. There, was, wow. there were very few investors out there that were not part of that 2006 deal with Tishman Spire and BlackRock. And they all lost a fair amount of money. Wow. So now you have a, a seriously intractable problem or opportunity, depending on how you look at it, I guess, <laughs> of, of what to do with this. Now, you, you've written this book about this, so I don't, I'm going to leave it to you to tell us how much you want to, you know, spoiler alert or not, but I would love you to, you know, just share with us kind of, you know, to the extent you want to, you know, you know how it resolves, particularly as it relates to, you know, what I think is a really fascinating public-private partnership, you know, kind of approach to problem solving that I think has probably ramifications even larger than this deal. So, but you let me know how you want to finish this story and or how you want to leave people hanging so they'll go buy the book. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. It was on the front page of the New York Times for many years. So it'll be hard for me to be a true spoiler here. And the book, after all, is called Saving Stuyvesant Town. So, you know, we're, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to share more than perhaps I otherwise would with a great cliffhanging uh, novel. But you are right to say that there was both a problem and an opportunity at the moment of Tishman Spire's default. And I think to the extent that there is a real precedent and important lesson from all of this and important for uh, you know New Deal leaders and their affiliates and friends and people who subscribe to problem solving as a rationale in government, is that we as the tenants and the local elected officials we didn't have any uh, tools at our disposal. There was no legal obligation for anybody to ever work with us. The city had no legal rights in this deal. After Tishman Spire defaulted, the property was under the control of what's called a special servicer, which is like a nameless, faceless auctioneer whose job is simply to resolve litigation and move the property into its next phase of life. So we had to face that very difficult question as to how we were going to be able to not just, you know, stand on the sidelines and complain about the future, but to also be a problem-solving partner to that special servicer, which never, ever deals with elected officials or tenant associations. It's just not what they do. So we, we managed to, to work in, in a couple of parallel tracks. One was, you know, being vocal advocates for our community, demanding a seat at the table, bringing our allies like Senator Chuck Schumer with us, and uh, to make the point that this community had something built within it that was worth saving, that middle-class nature was something that was important for New York City, and that any future deal had to include the tenants, it had to include the city. It didn't really have to include the tenants or the city, but we made the argument that it should on one hand. And then on the other hand, we tried to make ourselves viable from a business sense to give potential future bidders, buyers, owners, a partner that they could actually sit across a conference table from and believe that they could strike a deal. So as you might imagine, between agitator and deal maker, 
that was a difficult, you know, two hats to wear at the same time. On the one hand, on the agitator front, we had 30,000 constituents with 30,000 opinions about what the future of this community should be. You had an active tenants association, which had set forth a number of principles as to where this community should go and what the future should look like. It did include home ownership, it included long-term affordability for the community. And then, you know, you had, we brought together some of New York's most talented restructuring advisors and lawyers to help us figure out how to navigate the choppy waters of New York real estate investment and to present ourselves as somebody, the tenants, somebody could actually sit across and make a deal with. And that was our strategy. Ultimately, a couple of things tipped in our favor. The election of the first Democratic mayor in 20 years in New York helped. When Mayor de Blasio came in, he, he and his team were very clear, and I certainly pushed them regularly about this, that they viewed Stuyvesant Town as central to New York's mission and its affordable housing stock, and that they were not going to let it just disappear on their watch, which was, you know, as a political matter, extremely helpful. I tried to reiterate that point by inviting uh, the mayor to my living room where we had cannoli with uh, lieutenant leaders. And that further made the point that we had, you know, some very significant allies uh, on our side. We also were able to persuade Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac not to lend in any future deal that did not have the support of the tenants and the city. So once you had po huge political support, mayor, the senior senator, and then you had Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac saying, yes, yes, yes. You know what? We lent in the first time. We're not going to do that again unless we understand that this has a reasonable amount of political support. All of a sudden, we were uh, not only viable players, we actually were important parts of the discussion as to what the future of this community was going to be. And at the end of the day, we, uh, we ended up striking uh, a deal to preserve 5,000 units as affordable housing for middle-class people in New York for the next generation. It was the largest housing preservation deal in the city's history. It was something that was unique because of its size, but also because of how little the city had to demand the outcome. And so between the, the efforts to make that point and to try to drive all potential parties to the table, you know, sending the message that not partnering with the, the tenants and the city was going to drive down the value of the property in a sale and drive up the cost because Fannie and Freddie would not be available to them. We were able to strike this deal. And uh, it was a deal that was important. And it was truly extraordinary based on what tools we had at our disposal, which were very, very few at the time. Yeah, it's a super fascinating story. And I'm curious, I mean, it's, it's, it's just in its own right, the ups and downs and, you know, just the, you know, the twists and turns and the, and the, and the really important outcome that you're talking about of this affordable housing stock in, in New York City. But why, why did you think it was important to tell this story? Why did you want to write a book about this? Yeah, well, I, I thought that, um, I thought it was important that, you know, with the middle class challenges in New York and beyond, that it was important for people to understand what that looked like and how there are a lot of people who are quietly struggling today to hold it all together. And, you know, that this was a unique 
set of uh, negotiations that were all happening contemporaneously, some in public view, some not, but all important. And it really required a fair level of coordination and determination over really a decade to be able to get it to a place where we didn't have more deregulation, more efforts to make this a luxury market rate community, which is what, you know, was attempted by MetLife and Tishman Spire. And I think it's a I think it's a blueprint for other communities that are seeing regulations expire that protect them, tax abatements that are expiring that otherwise provide some level of protection for them in their in their housing. This is, you know, it's unique, Stytown, in its size and its scale, but it is not unique in that there are other places that have given certain, you know, guarantees which have a, a time limit on them. And that really is what happened first in Stytown for over that 25-year period. Uh, and then, of course, with the, you know, the flexibility and the, uh, the, the loopholes in the rent stabilization system, uh, you know, creating all those opportunities for MetLife, Tishman Spire, um, those things exist all around the country. And so what I would suggest to people as they think about the story is use it as a blueprint for how to find leverage where you don't have any and think about how you can both be an agitator and somebody who could be viable in the marketplace at the same time. You want to be able to present an answer to the problem, not just complain about it. And that was really the hallmark of what the Stuyvesant Town Cooper Village Tenants Association uh, did. Yeah, I, I'd love to ask just one more question because I just find that one of the most heartwarming things, if that's the right word of, of, of this, is just, you know, the, the engagement, right, of the community itself, right, the coming together, stepping up, you know, so how did you find as a you know leader of that effort and as a tenant yourself, right, you're coming out with both hats as a city councilman, how did that come about? And were there challenges or obstacles that you had to overcome to kind of just get the, the tenant piece, you know, together moving forward in the same direction? I mean, I'm sure you oh, can write a whole yes. book just on that piece, but... Oh. <laughs> yes, it was very difficult. I mean, listen, we, you know, we have a lot of people in that community that are professionals, really smart, really capable. And, uh, you know, many even in the real estate profession, a lot of folks had different thoughts about where we should be headed. And finding ways to keep people moving, at least as a general matter in the same direction was a very, very serious challenge. And the thing that I found to be most successful was for us, the Tenants Association and me, to lay out some general principles that we were going for. Give ourselves enough flexibility to, you know, to come to different outcomes so long as they were within those, the boundaries of those principles. And to continuously feed information into the community. We found that, you know, sometimes we were trying to get the attention of a counterparty on the other side, like a special servicer or a potential bidder or whatever. And we would go, you know, months without having anything to report to our constituents. That was very bad. Mm -hmm. The moment that we stopped talking and reporting was the moment that people said, what are they up to? What exactly are they doing? I don't know if I, you know, trust what's happening behind the scenes. And it was that's a perfectly reasonable in this context, perfectly reasonable thing to say. But on my side, the tenant association side, we're like, well, we don't can we, we you can't just say, hey, just just be patient. Nobody nobody accepts please be patient. So we felt like we were tr constantly trying to find ways to 
advance the ball, advance the conversation. We even went so far as to find our own partner to make a preemptive bid to buy the property from the special servicer. We partnered with uh, Brookfield, Brookfield Asset Management, so that Brookfield and the tenants of Stuyvesant Town came together and we tried to buy Stuyvesant Town. This was our second effort. You know, this was now in 2012 to buy the property and, you know, telling people about how that was coming to be, what the plan looked like, why we picked Brookfield, how we were trying to get the attention of the special servicer, how we were going to get this done. Telling CW Capital, the special servicer, you have to engage with us, otherwise we have to be vocal in our opposition to you. So like, uh, you know, how do you say that without it feeling like a threat to them? You're just giving them facts. You know, we can't, we, we have to tell our constituents that we're making progress. If we're not, you become the target. How do you express that in a way that does not make somebody feel like you're actually attacking them? Anyway, those were the sorts of challenges that we faced for many years. And, and there were a lot of different views about what the, the end result should be among tenants. Some people believed that home ownership was absolutely the wrong route and that mm-hmm. you protect rent stabilized rental units at all costs. Other people believed that what the tenants and I were proposing, which was home ownership, but with restrictions on what you could resell it for to keep it in middle-class hands. So you'd have means testing for future owners was exactly right on the mark. This is a middle-class community. Let's keep it that way. And then there were other people who thought that any restrictions was just un-American. Like, you know, let the market rule. Don't put any restrictions on this. It's going to depress the value. It's going to depress the value of the whole place. All of our investments uh, don't do that. So there were a lot of different views there. Ultimately, we were not able to get a home ownership model done there. But we were flexible enough to see that that was not going to be able to be achieved based on market conditions, lack of political support from the mayor, and a lack of interest from uh, the future potential buyer, that we were able to still get a great outcome even without that, and to get a fair amount of recognition and support of that from our neighbors, uh, that we did something really quite impressive for the community and for future residents that we otherwise, you know, would not have been able to do. Yeah, it's a huge success. And I mean, I just love some of what you're talking about as you were talking about this being a blueprint in so many different areas of politics and problem solving, things like leverage and communication and being flexible on the outcomes. I mean, there's some really lessons I think that are truly applicable across many many areas that people can take from this. Dan, I'd love to just spend a few minutes talking about your own personal story. As you know, this is called an honorable profession and Bobby Kennedy reference about politics and public service being being honorable. And as we mentioned up at the top here, you served on the New York City Council. So I'd love to talk for a minute about how you, how you got there. We talked about your growing up in, in Town, and then you went off to, to Dartmouth for undergrad and eventually to University of Pennsylvania for law school. I think if I read correctly, you spent, which I want to ask about because I thought it was just interesting, you spent a little time between those two degrees in the South working with Black churches that had been victims of arson. Is that correct? And yeah, if that's, that's true, how did that happen? And, and what was that experience like? That is that is correct. Well, I, between college and law school, I spent a couple of years working for a civil rights organization in New York. It was called the New York Civil Rights Coalition. And I ran a program called the Civil Rights and Race Relations Program, which was in 42 public schools around the city. And it was designed to get students talking to each other across racial and ethnic lines and try to, you know, reduce stereotyping and, you know, really to get kids engaged in difficult 
conversations, but across racial and ethnic lines. I had an interest in this subject. It was like something that I thought I might even want to do as a, as a lawyer, I might want to practice in civil rights. And then right around the same time, there was a, there was just this whole string of church burnings in the South, all across the South. You know, I remember seeing these images in the front page of the New York Times with like where the, the churches were burning down. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, you always hear about people of goodwill flocking to the scene of a hurricane or a flood, you know, to help out and to do that sort of thing. And I always wondered who were these people who could just like pick up and leave their lives to go do something amazing like that. And at that moment in time, as I was like, you know, I had one final year before I was starting law school. I was like, well, that's me right now. That's actually right me. Right now it's me. And so I went to churches and synagogues in Manhattan and I asked them to sponsor me to go spend some time down in the South to help rebuild some of these churches. And, uh, and that's what I did. So I went to Portsmouth, Virginia first, the Greater Mount Zion Church of God in Christ. And then I went down to Millen, Georgia, where I spent time at the Gaze Hill Baptist Church. And I worked with the congregations and, you know, worked with, right? Like I was just doing whatever anybody needed. I don't know anything about, you know, building a church, but I was an extra set of hands on deck. And I think most importantly, it was sending a, the important message that, you know, people who were from other areas of the country, people who were from different faiths, different ages, they were, you know, recognizing how much of a tragedy this was and we're not going to let it stand. So my, my presence there had much more value for my being a 25-year-old white Jewish guy from Manhattan than it did for my skills, like putting in insulation. But... Uh, I did a fair amount of that, but I but I think it was really important message, and I was very proud uh, to be able to do what I did down there. And so after that, uh, I did go to law school. I came out. I clerked for a federal judge for a year, uh, Colleen McMahon, who's now the chief judge of the Southern District of New York, and went to uh, Paul Weiss, where I practiced law for a number of years. And then I, there was a vacancy for the city council in the district where I grew up, and I thought to myself that that would be a really exciting and interesting way for me to serve the community that I loved and where I had spent uh, my whole, you know, my whole existence, except for college and law school. And so I decided to, to give it a shot and was, and was successful. I recognize that you're not always successful on your first shot. I was successful and I was very grateful to have uh, the opportunity. And I stayed in the city council. I was reelected twice. So I served for 12 years uh, in in the council, representing 14th to 98th Street on the east side of Manhattan. Had you, before this opening happened, had you been thinking that public uh, elected office specifically was something you'd want to do? Or was this something that when you saw that opening, you said, hey, wait a minute, that, that sounds interesting. Or is that something you'd always kind of had in the back of your mind? You know, I, I always thought um, government and politics was a really interesting path and route and honorable you know, I was a page in the House of Representatives when I was in high school for a summer, which I, you know, I loved. I worked in the cloakroom. I, you know, I ran for different offices in, in school and I liked it. I liked being the sort of person that people turned to when they had a problem. And that to me was the thing which was most interesting about uh, being an elected official or even wanting to be an elected official. That was the thing which, which motivated me. I, I felt like I wanted to be that person and I wanted people to feel comfortable putting their problems in my hands to help them deal with. So it was not a total surprise 
it was on my mind, although I recognized that I might never see the right opportunity. I figured I might be the, you know, counsel to the, you know, to the Senate Judiciary Committee or an advisor to a governor or something like that, just as easily as being an elected official myself. But sure enough, the opportunity presented and I, and I jumped in and, and uh, was fortunate to have that, have that moment. And at the end of that 12-year stint, looking back, do you feel like you were able to be that person that you hoped you could be in politics in terms, obviously we've just talked about a big one and a big problem being solved uh, for a long time in this, in this conversation, but, you know, just generally speaking as an elected official, were you a problem solver? Did you feel like you got some some stuff done and had an impact? For sure. And, you know, you can look at the big things like a Stuyvesant town or rezoning midtown or, or thing or you know, local laws passed and things like that. But the truth is, thing which was absolutely the most satisfying was when somebody would call the office and had an issue that they wanted to get resolved, either a they were hitting their head against a wall with an issue with the city or with a neighbor or the landlord or whatever it was. And whether or not I actually could fix that problem, making sure that people felt like they had somebody who was going to advocate for them, sometimes we could fix it. Sometimes we couldn't. But either way, I wanted to make sure that people understood that there was a way to do government so that you don't walk away angry and annoyed. And that was the best feeling for me start to finish. I I loved every now and then picking up my own phone in the office and seeing, you know, what was going to happen and, you know, surprise somebody. I would love to, you know, to show up and make a site visit to somebody's house when they said the garbage problem was I would just go. And they were like, whoa, this is, I mean, this is, you know, those were the things that I thought were the best and most satisfying of all things. So the answer is definitely, definitely yes. And maybe there'll be a run sometime in the future. Who knows, right? We leave things open-ended and never say never, maybe. (laughs) I think that seems like the right thing to do. (laughs) Yeah. Let me just, I I should mention now that you have stayed in public service post elected office and are working with the Riverside Park, right, in New York. I, I don't know if you just want to say a word about that. In particular, I was interested to, just to see the thread, because I, I want to ask a final question on this one, this thread of civil rights. I know that as part of your work in this with this new organization, you've been focused on parts of the park that serve underserved communities. So I'm really interested in this kind of thread of civil rights that's, that's run throughout your whole career. So I would love to hear about that for a minute. For sure. So I now run a not-for-profit organization that supports six miles of parkland on Manhattan's west side. So I'm, uh, you know, bordering the other river of Manhattan and, you know, working to enhance that very valued public space for the millions of people who enjoy it every year. And last year, which was the middle of my, you know, second year in this, in this role, we decided to focus a fair amount of our efforts to helping to address areas of the park that historically had been underserved. The people who live next to these areas of the park are predominantly Black and Latinx and have poverty rates much higher than on the rest of the Upper West Side. You can see the lack of investment that has been made in the park in the areas that border those communities. And it's really not appropriate. It's something that we want to fix. I'm determined to fix. Uh, So we launched a campaign just for that. Uh, You know, we have a whole park to take care of, but we focused people's attention on that initiative and we're able to like 
to get a lot of great support, a lot of new donors, a lot of interest, a lot of people who want us to deliver public programming and new playground equipment and uh, we, you know, a bike education center and adult fitness equipment, like all this stuff that, you know, there is a real interest in delivering and people understand that and people, our donors recognize uh, injustice and they want to correct it. And when you put yourself out there and say, this is where we're headed and this is what we want to do, people respond. And so you are right to identify a strand and a connection. You know, my hope is that we're able to leave that part of the park in a much better condition and to not have it be a game of failure and catch up, but rather the highest level of care and investment on a much more consistent basis as a result of our work in the conservancy and our advocacy to the city. Yeah, I love that. Well, and certainly as we look at where we are as a country right now, COVID having shown such a bright spotlight on so many areas where there's been this disparities, particularly of communities of color, whether it's park access or education or broadband or healthcare, or even the health outcomes from COVID, it, you know, and, and, and watching all of the racial injustices that we've been talked about through the protest movement over the summer. It just seems like such an important time for all of us to be focused on these equity issues in all kinds of ways. And so I don't know if you just want to say anything else again with this this thread of civil rights that's run through your whole career about where we are as a country and where you hope we will go coming out of this pandemic. Yeah, well, I think that the last year, year and a half has laid bare so many of the the problems and the inequities that exist in this country. And they're getting an airing in a way that should have happened a long, long time ago. And my hope is that that puts us on a, on a different path. And I don't think there can be any short-term declarations of victory here, including in our own work in the park, right? So you take the big picture like Black Lives Matter and you know success in moving the needle on this and that. There can't be any declaration of victory yet. We have such deep structural problems in this country that we can continue to strive and continue to do better. And that's really what we are trying to do locally here. But we have, there's just so much, there's so much more to do. And I feel like there, you know, this has to be a, a constant reminder of, you know, even if there's not a march happening right now, that does not mean that the problem is not equally present and you know and harmful and continuing. So that's that is what I what I take away from all this. And we will continue to strive to do better and to create a, a fairer and more just uh, experience for people here. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, Dan Grodnick, thank you for joining us on an honorable profession today. Let me do uh, one more time the book. It's Saving Stuyvesant Town, How One Community Defeated the Worst Real Estate Deal in History. And I hope everyone will run out and purchase it. It's a fantastic read. Thank you so much, Dan, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.